We're in the book of Nehemiah, so I'm announced that ahead of time. We're starting the book of Nehemiah. Some of you will find it instantly. Others will need a little bit of time. It's okay to lean to your neighbor, turn to your neighbor and say, I have no idea where Nehemiah is. Can you help me find it? If you have it on your phone, it's a little easier, right? But if you have it like this, um, don't, be a, don't be ashamed to ask for help. We're going to be there in just a minute. We're going to start a series this morning, walking through the book of Nehemiah, and we're calling it Rebuilding Hope. Rebuilding Hope, and we'll, we'll talk more about that this morning. But here's where I want us to start. It, on the back wall of, our, of this building, there are these words. Our mission, the reason why this part of God's family, Crossroads, exists, is to raise up passionate followers of Jesus. The New Testament uses the word disciple. We don't use that word a lot in, in the 21st century, but it's a good word. It's someone who chooses to follow someone. Follow them as a, as a person, their character, their nature, and to follow their teaching, that person becomes their master. That's why it's a strange, ideology, or a strange idea in our, in our thinking today, this idea of having a master and someone submitting to that master. And that is the idea of a disciple. Specifically, the disciple's task is to make other disciples. How do you do that? They introduce the person in their life to their master, to Jesus in our case. We see that in the Gospels when Jesus began to call men to follow him. One of the first things they did is they went to, other, they went to brothers, they went to other people and said, you got to come meet this guy because I believe he is our master. He is the Messiah. He is the one that God said would come and take on, God would come and take on human form. And, and I've chosen to follow him and I want you to meet him too. I want you to know him like I do. That's what disciples do. That's what a passionate follower of Jesus is. And so on that wall, it says, we want to raise up passionate followers of Jesus. We want to make disciples who live by faith, are known by love, and are voices of hope. That's our mission. That's why we exist as a, as a, as a church, as a local gathering of God's people. That is why we do what we do, is to make disciples who live by faith, are known by love, and are a voice of hope. But we don't live in a vacuum, do we? You know what I mean by that phrase? We don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in, a, in a, a, a bubble that protects us from all things difficult, challenging, hard, confusing, Life is all of those things. It's hard. It's challenging. It's difficult. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's, we just want to scream because this isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't good. There's a tendency that we have as human beings that when we're in circumstances like that, we, we convince ourselves that this is unprecedented. It's never happened before. This has never been uh, a problem for disciple makers, the church, followers of God before. In different forms, yes, but now my set of circumstances. And what that conclusion does is it tends to overshadow that I have a mission. And I have a mission in the days that are dark and challenging and confusing and all the other adjectives that, that is the truth. 
right? It's not about denial. It's not about living in denial. It's about recognizing that I don't live in a, in a bubble. I live in a, a world that has all of those things. And the Bible tells us why. In a word, it's sin. It's our sin. It's our brokenness that is the source of the darkness, the pain, the hurt, the destruction. There is an enemy. There is a being created by God who loves all those things and wants to enhance those things. As followers of God, even as humanity, we have an enemy. We have someone who hates God and hates everything that God loves. And he wants to destroy anything that God sees value in and and loves. And it almost always centers back to people because that's what God loves most of all, is people, his creation. And so we have this sin, we have this enemy. The reality is we're living as all those who come before us in a day where I'm not in a bubble, but in fact I live in a set of circumstances that are all those things. There's, there's a moment that I, I want to draw our attention to. It's in, it's in 2 Kings thir- 25. It's also recorded in Jeremiah 39, I believe. You can read it there. I'm going to read a part of it. It's a moment in, in God's story with his people where the circumstances are unfolding in, a, in, a, in an incredibly dark and painful, confusing way. It's the fall of Jerusalem, the city that God put his name on. And and you may or may not know the history and the different pieces of this this story. But in this moment, in 2 Kings 25, it's the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign. He was the the king of Judah. And on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem. He brought his army to the the outside of Jerusalem. And they laid siege to the city. As we read on, we realize that he lays siege to the city for two years. And finally, we're told the city is broken into, and all the warriors fled. The the army of the the Israelites flees. The king flees. All of his fighters, they, they abandon the city. And then we read that Zedekiah, the king, finds himself completely abandoned. His army has left him. It's scattered. And the Chaldeans, the... The, the army of Nebuchadnezzar, they catch him, they seize him, and they pass sentence on him. They do some terrible things. They kill his children before his eyes, and then they take his eyesight. And then they put him in a chain, they put chains on him, and they carry him away to make fun of him, to mock him to Babylon, where they can continue to taunt him, taunt the people of God, and make fun of their God. It tells us that the captain of the guards, Nebuzaradan, a servant of the king, enters Jerusalem. He burns the Lord's temple. He burns the king's palace. He burns down the houses of Jerusalem, and he burns down all of the great houses. The whole entire army, with the captain of the guards, tears down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. They tear down the wall of Jerusalem. And they take, they deport. They take the rest of the people that are still in the city, the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, traitors, and the rest of the population, and they carry them away as slaves to Babylon. They do leave some people, 
If you read that chapter on, it tells us that they leave the poorest of the poor. They leave enough people to take care of the vineyards and the, and the, and the crops so that food is coming in and tribute can be paid to, to the king of Babylon. How do, you, how do you process something like this? We have enough circumstances in our own lives that we can address this question to, but if you just for a moment join me with these people of God, the, the, the Israelites, and this happens, how do you process that? How do you, how do you see beyond that moment? How do you come back from this? How do you rebuild how do you even begin to think of rebuilding? That's the first question, right? And then as that plays out, how do you rebuild when there's nothing left to rebuild? And in the midst of this, in the midst of these kinds of circumstances, what happens to the mission? And if I can ask this specifically for us today, what happens to living by faith? What happens to this mission of being known by love? And what happens to this mission that I've been given to be a voice of hope? How do I live out being a voice of hope when I'm experiencing these kinds of circumstances, when I'm walking through the fire? How do I be a voice of hope? Let me ask the question a little bit differently. Can, and for some of you this is the question you're asking already, and I'm with you. Can God rebuild after moments like this? Can God rebuild hope? Some say yes. There's others here, and let's just allow space for it. There's others saying, I don't know. I'm, still, I'm trying to grapple with that. And as we move through that question, then we begin to ask the how. Okay, yes, I, th I believe he can, but how does God rebuild hope following these kinds of circumstances that we experience as his children, as, as human beings. Ne the book of Nehemiah is included in, in God's word because it's God's word and that is, is his, his heart that we would have it. It's his, his, his message to us. Specifically, I believe it's to answer this question because this, this had played out and some things that ha had happened. King Cyrus prompted by God after 70 years this had happened 70 years later he he says you know what it's time for the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and to go back and rebuild that temple and they can worship that God that that didn't protect them but and that happens and Zerubbabel leads a group and they come back and they begin to rebuild the temple 70 years later it's beginning to be rebuilt and they're beginning to experience this okay what does it look like for God to rebuild what we have destroyed because why did God do that to the Israelites to his people go back and read it I'm not going to spend a lot of time there some of you know but it was it was the consequences in this case of their their decisions and God allowed that to happen and now the rebuilding was beginning Zerubbabel came back and they begin to rebuild the temple and the foundation and they and then they begin to re-offer they begin to worship God again and the sacrifices begin to be offered. And under Darius, around that time, a guy named Ezra, a priest, God prompts and works through him, and he comes back, and he comes and he finds it a mess. Yeah, the temple's rebuilt, but man, people, the people of God are a mess. There's still just, it's just all this pain, all this destruction. 
And they're going after their own things. They're doing their own thing. They're not worshiping God. And God uses Ezra to begin to, to cleanse and to purify and to reestablish what it looks like to be God's people and worship him. He's rebuilding. And when we come to the book of, of Nehemiah, it's interesting in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are just one book. We've, we've made them two. But they're just one book. They're this continuing story of God rebuilding what seems impossible to us. And when we come to chapter 1 of, of Nehemiah, we see the next. Now Artaxerxes is, is the king, and Nehemiah is his cupbearer. He serves in his palace. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, and that's our focus this morning, is this first chapter, we pick up the continuing story of how God is rebuilding. And as we walk through Nehemiah, we're calling it Rebuilding Hope because I believe that's one of the big messages that God has, has used for thousands of years now to speak to his people. And he's speaking to us in 2022 today, this same message, that yes, God can rebuild hope. And he's going to do it in some specific ways. And it involves us. It involves us as his people. So the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, he's recording for us, Nehemiah, this part of the story. It was during the month of Cheslev, and I apologize if I am mispronouncing some of these words, in the 20th year, the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, when I was in the fortress of Susa, this is where he's serving Artaxerxes, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men. A group came from Judah. And I asked them, I questioned them about Jerusalem. So what's it like living in Jerusalem? I know Zerubbabel, he knew Zerubbabel had done that. It, a long period of time had gone by. And the temple had been rebuilt. And Ezra had gone back and, and made these reforms and, and challenged the people of God. And there was some, there was some revival. And, and the worship of God was taking place. And now Nehemiah says, so what's it like? What's it like? Nehemiah is still in servitude in, in Babylon as a result of that original exile. And he says, what's it like? And here's what they say. I question them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant, that my people, Nehemiah's people, the people of God that had survived the exile and had returned. And they said to me, the remnant, that's a loaded word, right? We can stop right there and say, it's not like it was before, Nehemiah. I'm telling you. We don't, there's not enough people, the economy's not good, you know, there's just not, there's not enough people to work at restaurants. <laughs> you know, we can't get people to come back to work, it's just, there's a remnant, there's a shadow of things before. The remnant that are there in the province, the ones who survived the exile, they are in great trouble and distress, disgrace. Great trouble. He says, Nehemiah, life is really hard, that's the trouble part. Life is really, really hard. And then he uses this word disgrace. And now he's talking about the reputation of God's people and even the reputation of God. Can I say it this way? Nehemiah, as God's people, it's really hard. Life is really hard. There's terrible things happening. And we just are not reflecting good on, on God. What's happening there, how it's be, life is being lived, it's not a good reflection on God or that we're his people. It's a disgrace. It's sad. 
I imagine there were more words, because that's how we, but this is what we're given. This is what Nehemiah remembers, and he writes down, Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, Nehemiah. It's still broken. There's no security. I mean, people can come and go, enemies, whatever. It's just, it's a mess. The gates are burned. Again, speaking of security. And when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. In fact, I mourned for a number of days. This idea of mourning means he couldn't function. He couldn't do his duties. He, had, he called in sick. My wife calls it a mental health day. You know, he called in and said, I just, I, man, my head's not in the right place and I need some time. And he's just, he's broken. He's wounded. And he's mourning for a number of days and he's fasting. He's not eating intentionally so that he can, he can pray. And he's praying before the God of the heavens. Let me, let me I want to suggest a couple things this morning in the time that we have about how God rebuilds in connection to us. And here's the first one. When God decides to move, when he's ready to rebuild, he looks for a broken heart. He looks for a broken heart. What do I mean? What I mean by that is what's given us about Nehemiah. When he hears about the state of God's people, his, his people, the people living in Jerusalem, and he hears about the effect on them and on the reputation of God and who he knows God to be, his heart breaks. God looks for a heart that breaks for the things that his heart breaks over when he's ready to rebuild. That's who he's going to use. We, we're exposed to a lot of pain, are we not? A lot of suffering, a, long, a lot of, there's a real danger of watching feeding on all that is happening in our world. And there's a point where you're like, okay, wow. And you walk away and you go pour yourself a glass of milk and you have, you know, whatever. Because it's just, there's just this, yeah, that's the world, right? That's, that's the way it is. Meanwhile, God's heart is breaking for that. He's still breaking over that. There's not a single moment of pain in any human being's life that it doesn't break his heart. And he grieves with that. That is not, that was not his intent. His, his creation was not so that we would suffer in pain. It was perfect. It was beautiful. It was intimacy with him. And then sin came in and did what it did. And now here we are living under, as Paul describes it, the curse of sin. He tells us even this planet is bearing the weight of the curse of our sin. Things are breaking. Things are failing. We hurt and, and sin against each other. We have countless examples of terrible leadership anywhere we look and the consequences of that. And God's heart is breaking. And when he's ready to rebuild, and he is, and he will, and he does, he looks for a heart that is broken with his. The way he said it when he described the king that he wanted for his people, you'll remember, some will remember. He, they had Saul. And he chose David because David had a heart after God's own heart. David grieved over the things that God grieved. What do we know about that? We know that David was a shepherd and he took care of sheep and he protected them and he fed them and he guarded them. He made sure their needs were met. That is the heart of God. And I'm sure David grieved when, there, when a lion got a sheep that he wasn't able to stop him or the, the grass wasn't you know, good, it wasn't good quality. We need, I need to find a new place because the sheep aren't getting their nutrients or the water was too 
whatever. You, you with me? That's the heart of God. And God looked for someone that had a heart like his to then shepherd his people. God has always been about looking for hearts that are broken like his. That your heart is broken over the sin, over the, the, the pain and the suffering that is the result of sin. And until I get to that place, God can't use me to be a part of what he's rebuilding. He decides to move. When he decides to move, he looks for a broken heart, a heart after his own heart, a heart that values people the way that he values people. And if I can just be drop-dead honest with you guys, gut-level honest, we struggle with seeing people the way God sees people. Now, I feel your, hold on, hold on, you don't know me. I do know you because I know me. The details are different. The group of people or the type of people or the behavior might be different between us, but we all have these pictures in our mind of people that are outside of my needing to care and to love them the way that God does. He's looking for a heart that values people like he does, a heart that is filled with compassion for people. I asked, I've asked myself these three questions. I'm going to give them to you. Nehemiah has been a part of my story for a couple of decades now, and I keep coming back to these questions when I read this particular text. What makes you cry? What makes you pray? What drives you to act, to move? What is it that makes you cry? What is it that literally makes you just, you begin to weep when you discover blank? My checkbook below 100 bucks. Okay, I know that was an awkward laugh, okay? Or the, the check engine light. Or the pink slip from the boss in my box. Or, you with me? What makes me cry? And is it connected to people as it is for God? What moves me to pray? Same things. I need more money. I need more comfort. I need... Or am I moved to pray when I discover something happening in somebody's life and I am moved to bring that person before God? What moves me, stirs me to act? If we continue reading, go back to verse 4 with me for a minute. I mourned for a number of days, we read that, fasting, praying before the God of heavens, and then we're given his prayer. This is what I said. Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open. Open up your eyes, God. Take a look. And your ears, may they be attentive to hear what I'm about to tell you, what your servant's prayer. Now, did God already know this? And did Nehemiah know that? that God, yes, of course he did. But you see the relationship here that I believe God intends for prayer to be. God invites us into this relationship. Yes? Talk to me. Well, you already know. Talk to me. Share your heart with me. You already know my heart. Of course I do. But this is a relationship that he wants with us. I want to hear your heart. And so Nehemiah is telling God his heart, I know who you are. I know you to be great. I know you to be the God of heaven. I know you to be awe-inspiring. You can do things that nobody else can do. And I know that you keep your covenants. 
So I'm asking you to open your eyes, open your ears, listen to what I'm about to pray. That I now pray to you, and, and God, just FYI, I'm going to be praying this day and night. Man, it's just, I, my heart is broken, and I'm just going to be coming to you. This is consuming me. I'm coming to you day and night, and I'm praying for your servants, the Israelites, your people. Notice what he does. I confess. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned, those before me. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances that you gave to your servant Moses. Please remember, God, what you commanded your servant Moses. You know, kind of interesting, he's reminding God of something that God said. Again, it's his heart. He's throwing himself on the mercy of God's nature, who he knows God to be. He confesses, he identifies with the sin. He's living in Susa. This is what's happening in Jerusalem. But as the people of God, as a disciple, as a follower of Yahweh, a worshiper of Yahweh, he confesses sin. He acknowledges his own sinfulness. Remember what you commanded your servant Moses. Remember this promise that you made. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you as my people among the, among the peoples. He had just done that hundred and something years earlier. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, if you obey my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, even though your circumstances were beyond human re re fixing, it seems impossible for me to rebuild what has been torn down. I'm making you this promise. I will gather them from there, furthest horizon, and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell, which is where? Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. God, Nehemiah prays, they are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. I know who you are, and I know who we are. When God is ready to move, when he decides to rebuild, he looks for a humble heart. He looks for a broken heart that's breaking with his and, and values what he values and sees people the way that he sees people. But then he's also looking, he, he needs for him to do what he wants to do. He needs this heart to be humble. Not, not justifying my, my, my own behavior, my own, you know what, this is not my problem. I'm doing my job. Obviously, he's in communing with God, he's, and he's praying with God, and he's worshiping God, and he sees God in a good light, doing my job. I'm doing my job well. And yet, what do we read? He says, I'm a sinful man, and I confess to you my, my own sin and the sin of your people. I'm not guiltless. I'm not innocent. I acknowledge that before you, God, and I throw myself on the promises that you have made. What does this look like for you and me as followers of Jesus? I throw myself on 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just, he's righteous to forgive us and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't forget to read verse 8 and 10 because 8 and 10 say, okay, if you say you have not sinned, you say you don't have sin, you don't have humility, verse 9 is not going to happen. Yes, you're forgiven because he did that on the cross, but I'm not going to enjoy the relationship with God that he intends to have with me because I have unconfessed sin. 
Instead of humility, I have pride that is standing between me and him. And when God's ready to move, he's ready to rebuild. He's looking for men and women, teenagers that know him, that say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinful man. I got nothing to bring to this conversation except I know who you are. And I know you're faithful to your covenants and you have made a promise that when we turn to you, you will bring us back. You will rebuild what has been torn down. He's looking for a humble heart, a heart that recognizes who God is, a heart that acknowledges the sin that is present without excuse, without justification, true repentance, a heart that appeals to the promises of God. I don't have time to read them, but let me throw them out. If you're taking notes, John 13, the last part of that, verses 12 to 15, Jesus models this humility. And I'll just say, if you don't know, that's the moment where he washed his disciples' feet. And he said, if I'm your master and you're my disciples and I did what I did, now you do likewise. Philippians chapter 2, this great theological statement that just messes with my head every time I read it, that God came to earth. Jesus took on human form as God in the full, fullest sense. And he came on, and Philippians 2, Paul describes that. Don't, don't be living for yourself. Watch out for pride, because the reality is Jesus himself displayed this attitude of humility in taking on human form and living among us and being willing to go to the cross and offer his life as a sacrifice. Not only did he take on the role of a servant, he was willing to be shamed and humiliated and all, all that came with that to rescue us from sin. But don't miss, if you're a child of God, don't miss that he also gives us a model of what true humility looks like in this world. In this world. In terrible circumstances. You, you with me? He, he modeled it when his life was filled with pain and rejection and abuse and heartache. And he models for us the last verse of this chapter, chapter 1, Nehemiah says this. He says, please, Lord, again, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Please listen to the cry of my heart and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. He's not the only one crying out to God to do something, to rebuild in Jerusalem. And then he says this. He says, I'm asking you to give me success today and grant compassion, your servant, Nehemiah, give Nehemiah success. Give me success today and grant me compassion in the presence of this man. This man being King Artaxerxes. And we'll, we'll look at that next week, chapter 2, his plan. When God is ready to rebuild, when he's ready to move, he looks for a broken heart that breaks over the things that his heart breaks over. He's looking for a humble heart that says, it's not me, it's you, it's all about you, who you are and your promises, and I'm just crying out to you, God, to be faithful to your promises, and I know you will be. And then God looks for a devoted heart. And we're not gonna unpack this this morning, I just wanna put this seed in our thinking. It's a, a fully devoted heart, a heart that says, I'm gonna, my life is about ready to change on every possible way I can imagine. And I'm, and I'm good with that in order to be a part of how God is rebuilding. Everything that, that Nehemiah had known, this, this plan that God had put in his heart, this plan that he brings to the king, we'll see in chapter two, is gonna change his life on every level. 
And it's going to mean sacrifice. It's going to mean hardship. It's going to mean some really hard decisions. And he says, he, in, in essence, he's, he's, I'm all in. I'm all in. When God decides to move, he looks for a broken heart, a humble heart, and he looks for a devoted heart. A heart that's ready to let go in order to move forward. A heart that is willing to sacrifice and embrace change. There was a little change when you walked in this morning. I can honestly say that was not intentional for this message. I didn't put those two together. But since it happened, you know, we struggle with change. We struggle with letting go. Even if it's something as simple as where I'm used to sitting. Or the, how come he's on the floor? This is weird. How come he's not up there? You know, he's going to spit on me now in the front row. We struggle with change, and the devoted heart says, God, I just want to acknowledge that I'm willing to let go. I'm willing to sacrifice whatever you ask of me, and I know it's going to mean change. And I want to take that journey with you because, God, I want to experience you rebuilding what we've torn down. I want to experience your rebuilding of hope here and here and here in this world. I love this verse in 2 Chronicles. Chapter 16, verse 9. And with this, I'm, I'm beginning to close. And I'm going to ask you a question in just a minute. So be ready to begin to respond in your heart and your, your head to these questions. But First, Second Chronicles 16. The eyes of Yahweh roam throughout the earth to show himself strong to those whose hearts are fully devoted to him, who are completely in. Here's, a, here's a, this an amazing glimpse into God's heart. God has always been about this. Looking. Looking. Okay, I'm ready to rebuild. I'm ready to restore. I'm ready to, to, to oh man, I'm ready to show myself strong. I'm going to show these people that I love one more time, one more time, another time. I'm ready to rebuild. Who, who, whose heart is broken? Whose heart is humble? And whose heart is devoted to me? Oh, there she is. Man, I, I, I'm going to do some amazing things through you because I see that your heart is fully devoted to me. You're all in. And I'm going to show myself strong. I'm going to build like you've never seen before. He's looking for hearts that are humble, broken, humble, and devoted. And that's my, my question to us. And I encourage you, just take a moment. My time is done, but I want to take a moment to do this. When God looks at my heart, right now, when God looks at your heart, what does he find? What does he see? When he looks at my heart, does he see a heart that breaks over the things that his heart breaks? Does he see humility? Does he see pride that needs to be dealt with, sin that needs to be confessed? And does he see devotion? Does he see a commitment in me that says, God, here I am, send me. I'm ready. I, I think I understand not all of it, but a good idea of what sacrifice looks like. And I know that you can, you, can, you can bring any change. I want you to bring whatever change you need to bring in my life because I want to be a part of the rebuilding that you're doing. And I want you to start right here. Because hope lives here, but it gets torn down by the circumstances of life. And if I'm going to be a voice of hope, God, I need you to rebuild it right here. And I want to be a part of how you're rebuilding it here and here in the world that you've placed me in. Will you ask yourself, examine your heart along with me as I examine mine, am I broken? And only you can answer that. 
as the Spirit speaks to us, am I really broken, God, of things that I should be broken over? And am I humble? Show me, reveal to me, God, search me, know me, show me what needs to be surrendered, confessed, and am I devoted? Jeff's going to come and, and lead us in a time of preparing for the Lord's table, and as he comes, can I just read? I, I, this, it's a prayer from a guy named Ephraim, the Syrian, in the 300s A.D., 4th century. Here's his, here was his prayer. O Lord, master of my life, grant that I may not be infected with the spirit of slothfulness and inquisitiveness, with the spirit of ambition and vain talking. Grant instead to me, your servant, the spirit of purity and of humility, the spirit of patience and neighborly love. O Lord and King, grant me the grace of being aware of my sins and not thinking evil of those who are my brethren. For you are blessed now and ever and forever. Amen.